Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. If you love listening to this show as much as I love hosting it, I think you'll really like the Medal of Honor podcast produced in partnership with the Medal of Honor Museum. Each episode talks about a genuine American hero and the actions that led to their receiving our nation's highest award for valor. They're just a few minutes each. So if you're looking for a show to fill time between these Warriors episodes, I think you'll love the Medal of Honor podcast. Search for the Medal of Honor podcast wherever you get your shows. Thanks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Last episode, we heard Major General Frederick Boots Blasse tell the whole story behind No Guts, No Glory and explain how dogfighting has changed over the years. Today, in the final episode of this three-part series, we'll hear Blasse talk about what inspired him to join the Air Force, what makes a good pilot, and the story behind how he met his childhood hero, the famous World War I pilot, Eddie Rickenbacker. Dogfighting kind of happened. There are a number of different examples or theories as to exactly when it started. I can only tell you the one that I've, I've always accepted and that I thought made the most sense, and that was at first they had uh, uh, all the, the flying over uh, Germany and over uh, the part of France was done by observation airplanes, and these were not armed, they were flown by in individuals and may, may or may not initially have had a second guy in the back. But uh, some did and some didn't. And that even got to the point where occasionally a French or one of the airplanes from one nation would go by and the two of them would go by and they'd, they'd wave at each other. The guy in the back cockpit would, uh, would wave at him. And then that went on a little while. And then one day... One of the guys in the back cockpit pulled out a pistol and started firing at the other airplane. And that's what really started it. I mean, that ripped it. And uh, then there was a little more of that. And uh, then the single-engine aircraft, 
arrived on the scene. In our in our world, with armaments that's not very lethal, but it was significant. It was a hell of a lot better than a punch in the belly. 30 caliber machine guns that would fire about 600 rounds. And, uh, you know, you had to be within probably 600 feet of the guy to hit him. You couldn't be firing. There would be no, no use at all trying to fire at him with a 30 caliber out at... Uh, at 1,000 feet or 2,000 feet like you could do with a 20-millimeter gun or something like that. So the fighters arrived on the scene because the guy in the back was firing. And then uh, the fighters themselves decided to, that they would get the observation plane. And then the next step was they had to have somebody to keep the fighter off so the other nation bring bring their fighters out and would, bring, would give fighter protection to the observation plane. And... Uh, so pretty soon, one group of fighters is fighting the other group of fighters, and uh, most of the time the observation plane would go home and the other guys were fighting it out. There are a number of things that all go into the makeup of a good fighter pilot, the things that would, would maybe make him become an ace. And I think the, in my book, the most important thing is the desire to engage the enemy. The desire to do it, the, not just willing to do it, but the desire to do it. And if you stop and think about it, uh, of all the fighter pilots that were trained, I read this uh, just recently, of all of them that were trained, I think it was only 5% of them got into combat. And those that got in, of those that got into combat, only five, ten thousandths of them became aces. So your chances of becoming an ace, of having the qualities and the things that were necessary to become an ace were apparently very rare indeed compared to the whole whole shebang, you know. You'd be surprised how many, how many guys really didn't want to. When I got in the squadron, I'll digress just a moment, but when I got in that squadron at, uh, in Korea, I, I thought every guy is going to, you know, he's going to be there. He wants to get up there and get... It didn't, didn't work out that way. And after I'd been there at about a month, I'd had all the, ca the, the pilots categorized. And we had, uh, I think there were 32 pilots in the squadron. And there were about six of them that amounted to about 90% of all the kills, about six of us. And then there were about another 15, maybe 15 or 18, that were all in the process. And one of these days would become one of the sixth. Well, we go home. The other guys are, are they get more aggressive as they get uh, as they get more experience, and they become one of the six. But the other now you got about ten left, and out of those ten, you aren't going to get those guys in a fight. I don't care what you do. If they're up there with the MIGs, they'll always have a, a fuel tank that won't drop, or there something's vibrating, something's not right, you know. And uh, I, I I was amazed at. This every man a tiger business is really not true. There are a lot of pussycats up there. Bud Anderson, in my opinion, is probably one of the few really elite fighter pilots. He knew what he was doing. He was careful. He was aggressive without being uh, careless. He was just as good a fighter pilot as you could ever want to know.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Rickenbacker was my idol, so I read a lot of things about him and... uh, and what he did and how he, how he got into combat and what he was flying and that sort of thing. As an individual, uh, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker was really a very, very unusual guy. Uh, he pulled himself up totally by his own bootstraps time after time after time. He, he was able to maneuver himself into a better job, a better position, more money, this sort of thing. And that was out of a a very, very austere beginning. His family, his father uh, did not make a lot of money, had a good father and a good money, mother, although his father was very hard, very hard on him, he and his brother. And uh, he was uh, not what you'd call the ideal young kid. I mean, he was... Uh, he was caught stealing stuff a couple times, and and you know he, you would have thought looking at his first ten or twelve or thirteen years, he's heading in the wrong direction. Uh, his father got in a fight with a guy, and the guy killed him. And uh, his mother didn't work, and his older brother was not really the quality to jump in and take over things. And Eddie, who was fourteen, quit school got himself a job. There's no way to, to keep the house or to keep things going if he didn't do it. So he got himself a job. He was working uh, 12 hours a day, six days a week, trying to keep his house and his family and everything uh, all fed and, and keep him together. He finally got a better job. And eventually, he, because his father had taught him about tools and things like that, he, was, he turned out to be a, a master mechanic. And uh, he was then hired as a mechanic as a driver's assistant, the driver's mechanic in the race cars. And, uh, of course, his objective was to move over. He wanted to do the racing, and he began doing that. By the time uh, 1916 came along, and the war was going, and so, and our people were eventually uh, starting to go over there to fly, he was making $60,000, which is equivalent of over a million in these days. That was in 1916. He was making over 60000 a year. He quit that, took a job as a sergeant in the Air Force, 
And as a driver, because they told him he couldn't get in the air service, he felt if I get over there, somehow or another, I can work my way into it. And that's the way he did everything. He just continued to work his way all the way up. He was a remarkable guy. He got over there, was ended up being the uh, personal driver for General Billy Mitchell. Through Billy Mitchell, Billy Mitchell thought he was great, that he did good. He, he did a lot of minor things that were good and all that. And one day Mitchell was going to a very, very important meeting, and they gave him a car, gave him an old Hudson. And uh, Mitchell didn't like that, but that was the only thing they had, and, and Eddie was driving it, Captain Eddie. And uh, sure enough, they got part way down there, and the car broke down. And uh, Mitchell was through the roof. He was going to miss this important meeting. He had to be there. And uh, Captain Meddy went in there, and he, he took a few things apart, substituted a couple things, and in about 30 minutes, he had the car ready to go again and, and got him to the meeting. And that really impressed uh, uh, Colonel Mitchell. So Mitchell agreed to give him a try in the air service, even though he was, well, he lied about his age, said he was 25. He was really 27, and that was two years too late. But he, he uh, got into the air service, and they spent a long time uh, trying to get trained, and uh, they went to a French airfield that didn't have any facilities, and all these American pilots would come in thinking they were going to have pilot training, and they were, they were ended up building hangars, and they ended up being construction people. And they finally got the thing squared away, and then they began getting airplanes, and then, uh, uh, you know, the guys didn't like Eddie because, uh, in his squadron because they were all aristocrats. The final uh, word, uh, name of it was the Lafayette Esquadrille. And uh, it was full of millionaire sons and people like that. And, and he had a kind of a funny accent and uh, was a little gruff and didn't, didn't use the proper English all the time. And he was not very well liked until he finally, uh, he started getting kills. And, and the next thing you know, he got to be squadron commander. And, uh, and he moved on up just by his own bootstraps from about... August, I think it was. In August or early September of 1918, he still only had uh, about eight, seven or eight kills. And then in October, he got about 14 kills in, in October when he was a squadron commander. And he revamped how everybody was going to do it and what the jobs were in the squadron and how they were going to fly. Uh, he totally worked them over. He wanted desperately to be the best ace, to be the leading ace and to be the ace of aces in the American Air Service. That drove him from dropping off a million-dollar income in these days, a drop of $60,000 a year income, and taking a sergeant's job and going over, thinking all the time, if I get over there and get close to it, somehow or another, I'll work myself into it. That's the thing that made him great. He, he had a tremendous desire to be the leading ace and to, uh, to fly fighters, and he knew he could do it. And... Uh, God, the, the airplanes, when, I, when I, I read about the kind of airplanes that those guys went into service with, I mean, you, you wouldn't believe it. It's just, uh, initially, he was flying a Newport 28. And it didn't have a throttle in it. It had a little thing that, that you could set. Uh, it was a rotary, had a rotary engine, had a rotary engine, so... Uh, you could pull the thing back and several cylinders would quit, pull it back further and several more would quit. And that's the way you reduce speed by stopping part of the engine, you know, and they could put it all the way back and the whole damn thing had quit. But uh, they went in to, to fight in those things. And uh, he did it. He got kills. He did a good job of it. And then finally they put him over in the SPAD 13 and 
he got most of his kills there in late September, early October, late October of uh, 1918. He was uh, a good dogfighter because he believed in the airplane that he flew, in spite of the fact that it wasn't good and he knew it. You could pull the wing, the wing fabric off of that Newport that he had. It had all kinds of things wrong with it, things that we would never think of going. And he knew, he got in and he learned the airplane. He got with the mechanics. He learned what uh, what things were good and bad about the airplane so that he knew what he could do with the airplane without getting in a lot of trouble. He got the Medal of Honor for attacking uh, a seven-ship flight, five of which were the uh, Falker D-8s. The best, it was the best fighter the Germans had. And he shot down one of them and, uh, and then got in between the two. By this time, the, uh, the observation airplanes had, had machine guns. And he got in between them and it looked like he was going to get hammered. So uh, he took this one and the guy started to turn away from him. He took him and, and took a big lead on him and fired him and, <laughs> and uh, shot him down and then took off and went home. Got two kills out of the, out of the thing without getting hit himself. He was quite a guy. I met him, uh, like I say, I knew something about him when I was eight years old. I was born in 1921, 1929, 1930. Uh, my father was in the Army, and we were stationed at uh, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. There was an airfield there, Army airfield, and the, the guy that lived down the hall, uh, a captain, took me up in, in, uh, in an airplane down there, and I, I really loved it. I thought it was great. But I knew... Uh, I knew that I wanted to be like him. Uh, he was my knight in shining armor from the time I was about eight years old. Nothing ever happened. Uh, I was I was so you know I was delighted to uh, to be lucky enough to accomplish that. In 1953, after I had come home, I was a leading ace, and they tabbed to me. I was on speaking tours, and they gave me an F-86, and and I was doing air shows at some place, and I was putting on an air show in Richmond, Virginia. And uh, they didn't have any fuel for me, so I had to, I had uh, no drop tanks. I had to go up, put on the air show, and then go over to Langley, 40 miles away, and land and get fuel, and then come back and get ready for the next show. And uh, I had just done that. I put on a show, got on, uh, went over and got gas at Langley, came back and landed. And I, I hadn't even gotten away from the airplane, and some guy drove up in a, in a car, looked like a pretty, uh, like one of these oddball cars, I don't know, expensive cars. And he came over and he said, listen, uh, we've got a Captain Eddie Rickenbacker from Eastern Airlines coming in uh, in about 20 minutes. And uh, we were wondering, we want to tow his spad over and put it under the wing of your F-86 and see if, uh, and we'll get him to come over and, the, and get a picture of the two of you like that. And he said, uh, would, would, you, uh, would you mind if we did that? And I said, would I mind? I said, if you want somebody to push that airplane of his over with his nose, I'll do it. <laughs> I was so enthusiastic about it. I, I couldn't wait. I, I just uh, he came over, and they still hadn't quite gotten the airplanes in in uh, uh, shape yet. And uh, Captain Maddie and I stood there on the ramp beside the two airplanes, and uh, we talked about. He was extremely interested in uh, in the terrific speeds we had in the jets, and the fact that uh, that I had gotten some kills in jets, and and of course I was I was questioning him on everything I could think about. It was really great, and they took a nice picture of the two of us, and I'll tell you, I got copies of that picture from all over the world, from friends of mine. I got them with, that had nothing but German written under them or nothing but, <laughs> but Japanese. <laughs> uh, 
deserves the same picture. It's all the, all the writing under it is in Japanese or it's German or it's French or something. But uh, that picture really got a lot of a lot of publicity. We had this talk, as I say, we talked back and forth for I would guess uh, at least thirty minutes, maybe thirty to forty minutes, and uh, and then he went back and got in his got back in his airplane, and I took off and was ready to go on another show. About uh, a week later, ten days later, maybe I got a nice letter from him. He said how much he enjoyed uh, meeting me and, and talking with me and, and talking about the, the the new things in jet aviation and jet fighters, and he said uh, and he sent me this. Eight by ten picture of the, that was going all around the world. He got, they had sent him copies of it. I didn't have one, and he said he wondered if would I sign this for him so he could put it in his den. And I said, "Me? <laughs> I can't believe this." <laughs> so, yeah, I you know of course I autographed it, sent it back to him, and said, "I'm only doing this under the provision that you will send me one back to." And uh, uh, about a week or ten days later, I got another nice one from him and signed it. Uh, uh, to my good friend, uh, Major Blessé, something at the bottom I've got from the inside at Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. And that, that's my, probably of, of 40 pictures and stuff that I got hanging around my den, that's my most prized possession. There. If I was in a hurry and the house was on fire and the, with a, the, the house had blown off, the roof had blown off and I could only get one picture, that's the one I'd go get before I left. was Major General Frederick Boots Blisset. If you haven't already, make sure to check out part one and two of this series. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rulhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.